0: So what are you waiting for? Call Homevestors today. 866-I-WANT-UG. 866-I-WANT-UG.
1: You're listening to the House of Cards, the voice of gaming in New Jersey, on AM 1360 WNJC.
2: You know what cheers me up?
0: Rolled-up aces over kings. Ladies and gentlemen... Boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today,
1: the game is different. With author and professional poker player, Ashley Adams.
3: Okay, you have some
4: skin. Hello, listeners. Welcome to House of Cards. I'm Ashley Adams, your guest, your host for the hour. We have a great guest, an exciting and successful poker player, one of the fastest-rising stars in the poker universe. His name is Chris Mormon. If you haven't heard of him, shame on you. He's had over $10 million in online caches, $2.9 million in live caches, ranked number one online worldwide 18 times, and a bunch of other things that we'll talk about. A great player. We'll be having him with us. And then we have Ed Miller, author of Playing the Player and six previous books, will be a guest on our show. He is an extraordinary poker writer, one of the true greats, and we're happy to have him on. So stay tuned.
5: And free shipping. Just use offer code BABE16 at adamandeve.com. Are you still shopping the old fashioned way? Well, then buzz on over to bzid.com. bzid is your number one online auction source for brand name new items from companies like Apple, Sony, Canon, Dyson, Samsung, and more at discounts of 75, 85, and 99% off retail.
4: Go to bzid.com and use the offer code VIP and get three bids for the price of one. That's offer code VIP to get three bids for the price of one. Go to BZID.com. B-E-E-Z-I-D.com. BZID.com.
2: Are you or a loved one currently suffering from arthritis, COPD, or other chronic conditions and can't get relief from current treatments? If so, there may be another option. Local physicians are conducting research studies in your area today, and you may be eligible to receive up to $1,300 in compensation for participation. That's right. You may be eligible to receive up to $1,300 in compensation and study-related care from a local doctor at no cost. Health insurance not required. If you or a loved one have been diagnosed with arthritis, COPD, or other chronic conditions and are interested. Interested in learning more about these studies, please call toll-free 855-912-PAIN, 855-912-PAIN. These studies are confidential and are taking place for a limited time. We're looking to connect you to no-cost clinical research studies that are testing new treatments for a variety of conditions. Call 855-912-PAIN, 855-912-PAIN today to see if you qualify. Remember, health insurance is not required. Don't miss this opportunity. Call 855-912-7246.
1: You're listening to the House of Cards, the voice of gaming in New Jersey. Follow the show on Twitter at HOC Radio.
0: Theater 5 presents a House of Cards.
2: we cool not really
4: welcome back listeners this is ashley adams you're listening to house of cards and as promised we have one of the maybe the brightest star of all poker superstars today with us on the show his name is chris mormon If you have not been following the world of online and live poker lately, uh, just a quick bio. He has uh, really been an elite competitor all his life. Bridge and pool first and then unbelievable success at the poker table online as well as uh, brick and mortar casinos. He recently passed the $10 million in cash's uh, world and is now a very successful online and cash game player. A tournament player especially, Chris Mormon. Chris, are you there? Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Well, nice to have you. I'm glad you could share 10 to 15 minutes with us. Tell our listeners who are largely want to be successful poker players. I mean, they'd like to be you uh, in a heartbeat. Tell them a little bit about your journey to where you are now. How did you get to be the successful player that you are?
3: Um, well, I kind of
4: just started,
3: I started when I was at university. I was just playing for fun with my friends. I never kind of thought it would ever come to this but I just started playing with my friends for fun and uh, yeah I was instantly hooked on the game um, didn't start off obviously, obviously I started off losing like everyone else does kind of thing but I was just really keen to learn I just read everything I could I like made friends with people who like knew more about the game than me and I like, talked to them I just, just probably kind of annoying to them I just kept asking questions and they give me answers and I'd note it all down and try and just develop my own game and just kind of went from there really obviously
4: it's been a long journey but yeah no was there a moment chris was there a moment when you said wow i think i'm actually pretty good at this um
3: yeah i, I was it was my final year of university and i started to do really well like i've made a lot of especially being a student like we're all, all me and my friends are all really poor and like obviously winning money in poker games at that time, it was just, like, even bigger money than it was. It was just huge. Like, I, I remember b- buying, like, a big TV, and all my friends would come around to my house just to, like, watch the football games and stuff on it. It kind of <laughs> dawned on me, like, how well I was doing. I was just, like, making so much money for, like, rather, like, at the time, all I could have been doing instead was just working in, like, a, a local store and getting five or six pounds an hour. So, like, the difference in poker was, like, quite a stark contrast.
4: Was there a moment when you said, "I think I'm going to do this full time for a living"?
3: Um, yeah. Like I was kind of, I was kind of struggling in my final year of university. I like, managed to scrape through, but um, yeah, I just decided that it was best to give it a go. I just sat my mo- like I sat my mum and dad down because I'd been away at university. They didn't really know that I'd been playing poker at all, to be honest. So I sat them down and I had something big news to tell them. And they were kind of shocked. Like, I don't think my mom took me that seriously at first. But like, I showed her, like, that I paid off all of my student loans and I had like money to spare. And like, my dad got more into it. He like not- noted down every like the money I had in every bank account and was like, okay, I'm gonna give you six months and like you come back to me, like report to me then, and like we'll see how you've done in that six months. So he knew exactly where I was at. And then obviously in that six month period, I was quite quite fortunate in the fact that um i was managed to pick up quite a lot of results i just put everything i had into it you know like my friends would be be like calling me on a friday night to go out drinking and stuff and i would say i politely turned down i kind of just took six six months off the rest of my life and just focused solely on poker because i knew i just had to like achieve all i could in this period just to like prove to my dad that i could do it and fortunately yeah it went really well and i reported back in six months and he was like uh Yeah, you need to teach me how to play this game. So, (laughs) did you? Uh, I did actually. It was quite a funny story as well because he started playing a little bit because he just wanted to like understand what was going on, so we could like talk about it and become closer over kind of poker. He took a really strong interest in it, which was really nice. And um, a couple of years later, actually, I'd been away in Australia for a few months, so I hadn't been there for his birthday, which was in like February that year. And I was back; I got back in March. So as a like a birthday present, I um, offered to buy him into this UK Poker Tour event they had, which was like a thousand dollar buy, a thousand pound buy, so like I don't know, like sixteen hundred dollars, and I bought him into it, and we went up, like two hour three hour drive up to Manchester for the weekend to play this tournament, and like it was kind of just was supposed to be like a father and son bonding experience, but and, like, to play the poker tournament. He was actually really nervous. He was like, I just want to do you proud. I don't want to like, embarrass you. I said, don't, like, it's fine. Like, no one expects you to win. You're not a serious player and stuff. So we went to play, and we both played in the tournament. And uh, after the first day, I think there was, like, 400 people in the tournament. And after the first day, there was 80, 80 players left or so. And I was in fifth place, and he was actually a chip leader. And, um, <laughs> wow. yeah, and then, like, on day two, I think 27 cashed, I actually ended up Bubbling, I came at 30 or something, so I was a bit devastated about that. But my dad was still doing good, and he uh, he just made it to the final table. Like his big thing was to make the final table, and he made it there short stack. And then once he got to the final table, a lot of the other players were kind of scared. They were all like worrying about how much more it was for the next pay jump, and he was just in it to win it. Like by, like he'd already won it by making the final table, so he just went for it. And he, had, he actually ended up winning the whole thing for like
4: <laughs> 70, his first tournament. Pounds. This yeah, is his first like, major he, tournament? He won the he, thing?
3: Yeah, his first major tournament. He played one live tournament before, which was a £10 read by his local casino. <laughs> he, we, we won the whole thing for, like, 120000 U.S. dollars. But, I mean, it's a crazy story. Even, like, I've told this story so many times, but, like, still I can't believe it quite happened. You know, I, I was right in there the whole way. Like, it was probably one of the most emotional experiences that I've ever, ever had in Tokyo. You know, I was so proud of him.
4: Oh, that's terrific. Now, have, has he gone on to uh, playing, or did he say, nope? That's it. I I I set out what I did what I set out to accomplish, I'll leave the laurels to my son. I'm going back to doing what I do.
3: Um he he plays still. He plays quite a lot online mainly. He just but he's quite a on it. He doesn't he doesn't play many big buy-ins at all. He kind of sticks to the, the softer low stakes games and he does he still does, still does really well online. So, but he hasn't he's played a couple of life on since, but he hasn't really Gone crazy with it, which I think is good because obviously it's very easy for someone if they have one big result, it's very easy for them to think they're like the best player ever and like want to play in everything and like, easily lose that money back. But he just like invested the money, like did kind of sensible Warren parent stuff and just like got a new bathroom and stuff like that. He didn't actually put the money back in poker, so yeah, fair play to him.
4: That's great. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be right back.
1: You're listening to the House of Cards.
6: Poker. 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 I shall give it to you in a
2: word. Poker.
4: Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. For listeners that just tuned in, we're talking with Chris Mormon, who is an extraordinarily successful player uh, ten, over $10 million in online caches, $2.9 million in live caches, ranked number one online worldwide 18 times, four World Series of Poker final tables, 20 World Series of Poker caches. These numbers may be out of date, by the way. One EPT final table, ranked in the top 100 live players on the wor- in the world on GPI, winner of the British Poker Awards Best Online Player for 2010, 11, and 12, What's next for you? What, you know, you've done so much already at such a young age. What's next for you?
3: Um, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of see what happens. Really, I, I really want to get that big live victory. I've had, like, numerous second-place finishes, and to get so close, like, m- makes me even more hungry. Just because live is, like, winning live is so much better with the winning on live, really, like, a lot of the time at these big events, um, we have lots of there's like forty or fifty British guys who've all come to watch and like your friends. They're like all have a good time watching. They almost it almost becomes like a spectator sport when they're there because like they all get into it. They make up songs, they're chanting, they're drinking, they're having a good time, and yeah, like winning one of those events rather than coming second. I mean, coming second was like over the moon kind of feeling anyway. But I mean, winning one would just be like out of this world. So. Yeah, that's kind of what I want to do. Maybe like I'm going to focus a lot harder. I'm playing live in uh, 2014. I
4: think. What is the difference, Chris, between live play and online play? If you can pinpoint a few specific things, what would they be?
3: Um, I would say probably number one would be like patience, just because online you're playing a lot, you play a lot of games at once, and it you know it doesn't take that long. Well, it takes a long time in. It doesn't feel that long to, to, like, play a whole tournament, like, five or six hours. Whereas if you play, like, a, one of the big live tournaments, it can take up to, like, five or six days of, like, long training days, and then, like, 12, like, midday, and then finishing uh, mid- midnight each day, and then you gotta get to sleep, and you, like, so you don't get enough sleep each day. So, like, yeah, it's quite tiring, like, these live tournaments. And also, like... Obviously, in the tournament, any time you're going to have periods where things aren't going for you, and you just have to make sure you keep a level head and keep your focus and patience, and don't you know, like one big mistake can cost you a whole tournament. So one big mistake over five, five or six days is easy to happen. So it's, I think it's a lot more about staying steady and not doing anything too rash. But obviously, that's easier to say than do once you're like in the environment and like things go against you because live is just like so much more. I don't know, like, if someone bluffs you and shows you to your face, like, how if you get that out of your head for the next three or four hours when you're sat staring at that same guy, you know, playing hand after hand with him, and he's, you feel like he's, everyone's watching you and laughing at you. So, you know, like, you just have to <laughs> just focus on the future rather than the past if you play that
4: hand and stuff. Okay. Have you been uh, Have you been getting at all deep in the main event of the World Series of Poker? I haven't looked at your results. How, how well have you done?
3: Um, I think i played it. Seven or eight times now, and the first five or six times I, I didn't, I didn't even make day two, which is quite outrageous, really, because it should be pretty easy to make day two, even if like you don't do that well on day one, like because the like you get so many chips and the blinds are low, so it should be easy to make day two, but I just couldn't make day two. It was just like, oh uh, no, I just had this mental block with the main event. But then, um, not this year, but the year before, I actually went really deep. I ended up coming about 300. So that was, was 6,000 people. I think there was like 6,400 people in it or something. And I had quite a big stack. I like on day four or something. I think I was chip leader for a while. It was pretty cool because it was on my it was on my birthday as well. I started the day quite quite <laughs> short stacked, and uh, I managed to like quadruple my stack in the first hour on my birthday. And, like it was yeah, it was amazing. But like that tournament is kind of a different animal to every other tournament I've played. Like Getting chips in that tournament was such a buzz. It was almost like I was—it was my first ever poker tournament. I was that excited. It was—it was amazing. So I, w- I definitely want to get back there. But this year I, I made they made it to like near the end of day two, but um, yeah, I busted out then. But yeah, that's that's one tournament I haven't had the success in. That I'd really want to. So hopefully um within the next couple of years, I can make make another deep run. But it's tough because you know you only get one shot a year, at it, so.
0: Right, that's right.
3: Yeah, when you bust that tournament, is definitely, like, a real low point. Like, it takes you, you have to have a couple of days off from poker and, like, just do real-life stuff and before you get back on the ground kind of thing.
4: Now, I understand you're out in California now. Do you have, are you doing any poker out there? Are you playing at the Commerce or the Bike or any of the rooms out in California?
3: Um, no, I'm just here, for, like, for vacation, really. Like, I'm just, um, girlfriends from... Los Angeles, so I'm just staying here for a week before, um, because I've been playing a lot of poker the last month or so, like a Warrior W group and the EPT in London and just been playing a lot online. So I've just kind of taken a well-earned break, really, for next week. And then I think because it's a big weekend on the online poker this uh, week weekend coming up. I'm going to fly to Vancouver for a couple of days, just just literally to see a couple of friends and who who li- are staying there and uh, play a bit of poker. And then I'm going to come back and um, yeah, stay here for another week. Experience uh, my first ever American Halloween, which should be pretty cool because I heard you get, the guys do it pretty big over here. So yeah, I get to see that firsthand. And then yeah, and then I think I'm going to Montreal for November, which
4: I've never been to, which should be cool as well. Ah, that's great. So you're actually taking a vacation in what I think of as the poker capital of the world, which yeah, is uh, Los is Angeles. Yeah. You must have yeah. excellent self-control, I must say, Chris. <laughs> well, look, I, um, we have just about a minute left. I just have one final question for you, if you could answer, and then we'll, we'll end. I yeah. You're in England. There have been a lot of great players over the last 20 years. Are there any particular players who you especially admire that have maybe helped shape your career or people that you've just looked up to in the poker world?
3: Um, Yeah, like uh, one player who I feel like doesn't get enough credit from England, like who's a great player and like a really good guy, is um, Pres, Pres Banzi. Like he was kind of more of an older school guy who's been like the, the hit squad and was kind of around doing well way before I even started playing. But he's also like been able to carry that on recently as well. He doesn't play as much as he used to in, these days but he's had a lot of success and I like the kind of style he plays poker he's you know, kind of a bit similar to myself he's very aggressive and he like, likes to get involved in a lot of hands and yeah I just don't think he gets uh, enough credit as he should considering he's. I think he's won two bracelets oh. in the World Series and stuff So, yeah he's definitely someone I look up to and he's a really good guy.
4: Well, that's great. And if people want to follow you, do you have a website that they can go to or do they just look for your name online? And if so, what is it?
3: Uh, yeah, I just recently actually got a new website started. And it's, um, I'm, yeah, it's uh, chris com. pretty simple. Um, and, yeah, I'm looking to, like, um, interact with the fans and just, like, posting regular blog updates. And, yeah, like, it's pretty well done. I, yeah, I recommend checking it out.
4: Terrific. ChrisMormon.com. That's M O O R M A N. Chris, you've been a great guest. I wish you success. I hope to see you at the final table of the main event. Um, me too. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay. Take care. Listeners, that was Chris Mormon. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back.
1: Hey, Jersey, we want to hear from you. Send us an email at info at houseofcardsradio.com or leave a message at our hotline at 609-474-4627. Hi,
4: listeners, this is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guests, strategy questions, they could be practical questions about where and how to find a game, send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash hocradio. We're very interested in them. And, of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of Mailbag, info at of dot com and www.Twitter.com slash hoc radio. Info at of dot com and www.Twitter.com slash hoc radio.
1: Hey, this is Dave from House of Cards, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about Jersey Man Magazine. Hey, this is Dave Weishato from House of Cards, with your House of Cards gaming report for the week of February 24th, 2014. Well, the numbers for New Jersey's internet gambling are out, and they're looking pretty good. Online gaming brought in $9.5 million in January, which is $2 more than in December. This amount helps offset a 9% loss from land-based gambling from the prior month. The big winners are Caesars and the Borgata, which together account for 97% of the Garden State's online poker revenue. Former Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker Mike Merriweather has settled his federal lawsuit with the Meadows Racetrack and Casino in western Pennsylvania. Merriweather claimed that he was fired from his casino promotions job because of his race. Merriweather also asserted that the casino's white management made disparaging remarks about him being black and being potentially violent. The terms of the settlement have not been disclosed. And finally, this is the time of year when a poker player's thoughts turn to the World Series of poker. And to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the event being held at the Rio, Caesars Entertainment announced that this year's winner will receive a guaranteed $10 million prize. This is the 45th year of the tournament, which kicks off Memorial Day weekend. Start practicing, because it's right around the corner. Have any news or tips regarding casinos, gaming, or legislation? Send us an email at newsroom at and follow us on Twitter at HOCRadio. Great moments in history. In 481 BC, the defeat of the Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae.
2: As long as Xerxes doesn't find the secret path to the hot gates, where
4: is it, boy? Xerxes has found the secret goat path to the hot gates. Ah,
1: in June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. You're listening to the House of
2: Cards. Now look, mister, first rule of the game of poker, whether you're playing Eastern or Western rules or or the kind they play at the North Pole, is put up or shut up! (laughs)
4: Welcome back, listeners. We have a very significant guest. We are very, very fortunate to have, I think, one of the top two or three, maybe the greatest poker writer alive today. He writes about strategy. He's written seven books that have and certainly will help shape poker in the years to come. I mean, you all probably know Herbert Yardley, Doyle Brunson, Mike Caro, David Sklansky. This is a writer in the same league who has come on in the last five or six years He's recently published Playing the Player. I think it will significantly change how hard the games are at the table. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ed Miller. Ed, are you there?
6: I'm here, and that was kind of a ridiculous introduction. Thank you very
4: much. Well, I I don't think it's uh, incorrect or inaccurate to say that you are of the same ilk, at least for the reading player today. Your books have had a profound impact, especially for low-limit players who are trying to move up. Um, people that are playing against tougher players, playing the player uh, from what I have read. And I haven't read the whole book because I haven't gotten it yet. I've read some excerpts. I've read some of the online stuff that I was sent. But we had Doug Hull on, who is an acolyte of yours, a student of yours, and a writer. His book, I think, has made a significant contribution. And I think his stuff is based on what he learned from you. Isn't that fair to say? Yeah, that's, that's fair, for sure. Okay, so tell us a couple of things about why you decided to write, other than to make your mother proud.
6: <laughs> um, well, I think making my mother proud was actually pretty high on the list because uh, she she was an English professor when she was working. Anyway, um, I uh, I I started. I wrote my first book uh, nine years ago now, and it was just uh, I kind of. You know, I've been playing poker full time for a while at that point. And to be honest, it's a very, very stressful way to make a living. It's, you know, I mean, even though, you know, over the long term, you know, you win a lot of money, it's, there's a lot of ups and downs. Yes,
4: the word and, mercurial comes to mind.
6: Yeah. And, and, um, I, I guess my sort of, uh, I was starting to see some gray hairs. I was only 23, 24. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like, I, I, I kind of wanted to take the skills that I had playing poker. I wanted to kind of dial my schedule back a little bit. So instead of playing 40 to 60 hours a week, just sitting in a chair, I wanted to kind of take those skills that I had and kind of make use them to make a living uh, without, you know, requiring me to be in the chair the whole time. So uh, I, I wrote my first book, and um, it worked out great. Uh, people liked it. And I was also real happy. I, I if, if I wasn't going to be a poker player, I was going to be a high school teacher. So I've always been interested in teaching things. So it was kind of a natural fit for me to uh, start writing
4: books. Well, i, I got to ask you a couple of follow-up questions to that. I mean, it's all fun to say you were a poker player, it was stressful, you were getting gray hairs, and you decided to write. But, I mean, our listeners need to know you have – degrees in physics and computer science and electrical engineering from MIT. Why didn't you decide to go into one of those obvious fields?
6: Yeah, yeah. I um, well, I I, I actually started as a software developer at Microsoft. That was my first job. And, um, you know, from my viewpoint, I I got kind of politics out of that job, Just, just as happens sometimes. Groups got shifted and new projects got created, and I got moved from here to there. And it it just um, didn't work out kind of from that sense. And and that was like right when poker was taking off, and it was a hobby for me, and I was excited about it. And, and, you know, as I said, I was thinking about becoming a high school teacher. I was like, maybe I'll do that for a couple years. Um, But that was poker. That was like the year that Moneymaker won the World Series, and the excitement just kind of you know, swept me up away with, with as poker got, you know, took off and everybody got excited about the game. I did too. So, so I think that's kind of why, and then then I really haven't returned to those fields. You know, I've been doing this for about 10 years now, 11 years. And,
4: um, do you see yourself, do you see yourself writing anything other than poker literature?
6: I do. I really, and, and that's the other thing is I really, really enjoy the writing process. I didn't think, you know, going into it, I was like, well, you know, this is something I can do with my poker skills. But once I got used to kind of the rhythm of a writing career, I mean, I have to say, you know, as far as stress and as far as, um, you know, just the day to day of being a writer, I mean, it to me, it's it's 500 percent better than most other jobs. I mean, I, you know, I only write a few hours a day. I uh, do it whenever I want to. If I don't write anything that day, no big deal. You know, if it if it just, you know, doesn't come that day, there's always the next day. But okay. So really for me it's a it's a very great lifestyle. So I'd love to write about other things too. I just like that writing.
4: Well, I want to uh, get I want to get to your I mean, I know we have a limited amount of time and I want to get to some of the stuff that you cover in your book playing the players. So, let's get into it a little bit. We we have a shift that I think has happened at the one-two and two-five tables, and that is that a lot of the really soft money that an ABC player, a conventional uh, fit-or-fold type no-limit holding player, used to be able to get by being conservative, nitty, uh, and by the book, a lot of that money is dried up, and now we need to adopt new tactics to try to capture the money that's still there. What can you say are the top three or four, if you could do it simply and briefly, Three or four things that a good but not yet great uh, no-limit hold'em player, especially at the lower limit, no-limit, although that sounds like an oxymoron, the lower limit, no-limit player should adopt for his game to improve and go to the next level. You could focus on three or four things.
6: Yeah, sure. I I mean, what you said is absolutely true, Um, especially at the 2-5 level. Let me focus on that. Because that's one where, you know, you can make pretty good money playing 2-5. Um, and uh, but a lot of people aren't. A lot of people who were making the money six, eight years ago aren't making it. Uh, and that's because they're waiting for hands that almost never happen anymore. You know, And so you're not going to do very well if you're waiting for something that's not going to come. So what I do now is I kind of pick on those people that are, that are just waiting and waiting, <laughs> is what I do. And I, um, I say the biggest errors that 2-5 players make is they play too many hands pre-flop because they're trying to make those big hands, you know, they're trying to make those flushes and straights. So they do play a lot of hands pre-flop, but then when they don't, they start not to get there on the turn. You know, they they don't really have much on the turn, or much that they feel con- confident calling down with. Uh, they just fold. And so what ends up happening is they end up building these pots pre flops They'll call a pre-flop raise. You know, you get $100, 120 dollars in the pot. And then they just abandon those pots on the turn. So my bread and butter play, um, and, and what I would suggest to anyone trying to get better, is to look at ways to build pots pre-flop and then to steal them on the turn and river. That's really what I think the bread and butter is right now for 2-5.
4: Right, I, I want to underscore something you said that isn't what other people may have heard. You said build pots pre-flop and then steal them not on the flop, but on the turn and on the river. Could you explain that? Because conceptually somebody might be thinking, all right, so you raise pre-flop with a lot of broad range. And then when the flop hits, you assume your opponents probably didn't hit the flop since most, most flops don't hit most hands. And if you bet aggressively on the flop, you can steal those pots, but that's not what you said. How is what you said different from that?
6: Because um, there's a lot of ways to hit a flop that that doesn't have you calling all the way down to the river, right? Because those river gets, you know, bets on the turn get big, bets on the river can get even bigger. So just because you hit a flop and you're willing to call, you know, a $50, dollars bet on the flop doesn't at all mean that you're going to have a hand by the time the river cards out that you want to call three to $500 with. So a, a great example for me is, is a flop like queen, nine, six, uh, maybe with the two flush out there, you know? So, you there's a ton of ways to hit that flop. If you've got king, queen, you got top pair, you got queen, jack, you have, I mean, uh, you have top pair again, you got jack 10, you got a straight draw, you got 10 9, you got middle pair, all the way down to 6 5, you still have a pair. And then you could do it again king, jack, queen 10, jack 9, eight, 10 8. All these hands hit that slot. So all these hands are going to be inclined to call, uh, you know, that 40 to $60 flop that you put out there in a 2 5 game. But what's going to happen is frequently on the turn, you know, a card like an ace will come off, okay? Now, none of those hands I just talked about, king, queen, queen, jack, all the way down to 6-5, you know, king, jack, queen, 10, all the way down to 6-4, whatever, however far you're down you want to go, none of those hands like the ace. And that ace, you know, I can see that. All I have to do is think about what kind of hands you have when you call and then look at that ace and say, you don't like that card. <laughs> and so I bet the card. And, uh, you know, let's say you're stubborn. Let's say you got king, queen, or maybe you're open-ended. Well, you call that bet on the turn. Now the river comes. Chances are the river's not going to make your hand, because it usually doesn't. Uh, So I'm just going to fire one more time, and you're going to let go. So um, that's kind of my strategy, is I just look for boards like that. um, And and really, you know, those boards are all over the place, because people just fold too much in these games. Uh, and I'm I'm building pots early pre-flop and on the flop. I'm I'm not shy about having people call my flop bet. Uh, as long as I know what the turn and river cards mean for the type of hands you have, I'm happy to just keep firing.
4: So that's that's a, a leap for a lot of players. Conventional game is when they bet pre-flop, and then the flop comes, and they bet uh, two thirds or three quarters pot size bet they're disappointed when they're called, you would be happy with the call because what you're really aiming for is to take it away on the turn or on the river when the drawing hand or the the, the weaker hand that's afraid of a drawing hand that comes in uh, doesn't come in. And so then if you have a scare card on the turn, like an ace in the examples you gave, uh, you bet – And that's a scary bet. And you can often take down the pot there. Or if the person is still drawing, which if they're a bad player, they may still be, you could make a pot size bet on the river and take down an even larger pot.
6: Yep. That's, you know, and there's a lot of cards. It doesn't even have to be a scary card. Like a deuce on the turn is good because a deuce doesn't help either. You know, maybe it's not a scary card to say, but it doesn't improve any of the hands I talked about that we're calling on the flop. So you know, there's a lot of these boards and a lot of these cards that can come off. It's the combinations of board textures and then turn and river cards. And just knowing which combination, uh, you know, your kind of standard 2-5 player is going to end up folding too much against and just firing on those on those cards. That's, that's really... My bread and butter of what I do at that level.
4: Now, a couple of caveats that I think are important to mention that some of the casual players who read your book or listen to this interview and read some of your articles might not appreciate is that these tactics don't work well against short stacked players who don't fear larger bets on the Turner River, who may be nearly all in or all in on the flop. So you've got to be careful that in your pursuit of this aggressive strategy, you're not going up against players that are so short that they have nothing to fear from a turn or a river bet, and they'll be there, and they may have medium-strength hands that would take down your aggressive betting. And the second thing is, right, isn't that correct?
6: Yeah, I, no, I agree with that. And, and what I do to kind of to kind of make my strategy work even a little bit against shorter stacks is, is I shade my bet sizes smaller on the early three when the sacks are shorter. So when, if, say, say, it's a 2-5 game and I, I have an opponent and he's only got, you know say, $350 in front of him, you know, as opposed to the, 5, 000, the $500, $2,000 or more, that's kind of typical. Um, what I'll do is I'll make my bet sizes smaller to start out so that I can still end up getting, all, you know, that final bet is still going to be 200 plus. And that's kind of, that's what I see as the tipping point with a lot of players. At, at the 25 level at least is, is about $200. That's serious money and that's where people really back off and left Yes.
4: A, yes, where well, the absolute number, ahead. the absolute number of dollars trumps their understanding of yep. uh, pot odds, which seems yep. to go out the window cuz it's just a scary number. I got that. That's yes. that's a very important concept. I we only have a couple minutes left, Ed, and I want to focus on a couple of other things. First of all, where do you tend to play your live games?
6: Uh, well, I live in Las Vegas, uh, so I play Aria, Venetian, Bellagio, you know, the big rooms here in town mostly.
4: So you're not out there looking for tourists as much as even good regular players who tend to have predictable patterns of betting. You can take the advantage of them even more than the totally unpredictable newbie. Is that fair to say? Yeah,
6: these, these, I mean, these days I play during the days because I have a three-year-old and that, and that dictates my schedule. Uh, so I take what games I can get, really. Uh, but, yeah, I would say most of the time I'm playing against regular poker players who, who are in there, you know, day after day.
4: That's good to hear. And my last question for you, and you can go on, do you have any other writing projects in the works that we might expect to see sometime in the next year or so?
6: Uh, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm putting together a, a compilation of a lot of the articles I've written over the years. Uh, get those all in one place, and I'm going to add some new content to make it, you know, extra worth um, worth looking at. So, so look out for that. I'm going to have probably three books of that coming out soon. And then I want to put together a series that is um, kind of like multimedia. I'm going to have some video and maybe like a workbook and and kind of a, a whole um, I don't know what, what they call it, but a whole package that you can buy that's a little bit more extensive than any single book that I've written so far. And that's, that's longer term. I don't know if that's going to be out in a year or not, but.
4: Well, that's fantastic, that's Ed. Uh, give our listeners your website, how they can contact you if they're interested. I know you offer private lessons and also if they yep. want to read more of your stuff.
6: Sure. Yeah. No, my website is dot com, uh, or you can just, Google Ed Miller Poker. I got a really easy name. so uh, <laughs> That might be easier to remember. Ed Miller Poker. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, at Ed Miller Poker on Twitter. Um, Terrific. So
4: so, That's ter- are you afraid that all your writing will come back to haunt you with players that know what you know and start to use countermeasures to take advantage of your play?
6: Uh, you know, there's there's some of that. But, you know, I, I don't. You know, you just everybody's going to be getting better and whether they get better from my books or from something else, you know, that's just, you know, part of the evolution. And I got to do what I have to do to stay ahead of the curve.
4: Great. Well, you have stayed ahead of the curve and I appreciate you coming on the show. Ed Miller, the author of uh, seven books, including playing the player, his most recent. uh, We've really appreciated having you on. Thank you very much. Okay, listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Don't just listen to House of Cards. Now you can be part of the show with the House of Cards hotline. Call us at 609-474-HOCR and leave a message for Ashley and the rest of the House of Cards crew. Comments about the show, poker questions, you just want us to know about great places to play, or you just got bluffed out of a pot. Your messages may even be played on the air. Give us a call at 609-474-HOCR. That's 609-474-4627. The House of Cards hotline, available 24 hours a day.
5: Just use offer code B-A-B-E-16 at adamandeve.com.
1: The key to winning poker is knowledge. And Winning No Limit Hold'em, the new book by World Series of Poker Veteran Ashley Adams, can give you that knowledge. Cash games, small tournaments, whether you're a seasoned player, a novice, or just find yourself losing more often than you win, Winning No Limit Hold'em can show every type of player how to consistently win at the game of No Limit Hold'em. You know, it's been said that winning isn't everything, but it sure feels a whole lot better than losing. Get Winning, No Limit Hold'em, the new book by Ashley Adams, and start winning today. Now available at Amazon.com and wherever great books are sold. You're listening to the House of Cards, the voice of gaming in New Jersey. Call or text the show at 609-474-4627.
4: Previously on House of Cards. They were very rude, and um, they kicked me out. Really? And they kicked me out of <laughs> About a minute and a half later, two very large guys came up behind me as I was seated, and they said, sir, you'll have to come with us. You've been asked to leave.
1: House of Cards has secretly obtained the audio from this Las Vegas poker room. Here's the poker room manager's instructions to his staff upon seeing Ashley.
6: I see you. I see you. You hit that in the face. You really f-ing hard. Sorry about <laughs>
1: Ow! 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 House of Cards. Spreading love wherever we go.
4: Very nice intro. Thank you, Doug. Uh, Thank you, Dave. Uh, This is Ashley Adams. Welcome back to House of Cards. And this is my favorite segment, not to be disrespectful of the other segments that I enjoy, but I love the mailbag. Dave always gets interesting questions and springs them on me unaware. So... Go to it, brother. Our uh, first question
1: actually comes from our Facebook page. Don't ask me what the address is or anything like that. Just go to houseofcardsradio.com and click on Facebook, and you can post right. questions there. Too. It's
4: cool. I hope you get some more pictures up there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll put some more pictures. I think we uh, put the ones when you were at the uh, World Series.
4: Okay, I think uh, my friend Andre Joseph has one uh, standing next to me, smiling. Both of us are smiling, which is uh, was not indicative of my mood through most was, of that, was that trip. That before
1: you played, or that was before. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother, well, what's up, Michael via Facebook wants to know: What do you feel the difference is between those players who play to make their living at poker as a boring job? Versus those who play because of the thrill of it.
4: Well, if you're a player who wants to make a living at it, you want to have people in the game who are there for the thrill of it. And so interestingly, if you are really serious about making money at poker, you are best to affect the attitude at the table of not caring at all so that you won't scare away those who are there to have fun, which is, to me, an ironic lesson that more people should learn because too many players who think they're going to earn their living at it. They're not. They're usually not really skilled. They don't have the disposition, but they think that they're really going to become professional poker players. Um, feel the need to behave in a way that is antithetical to what they really want to do. They don't behave in a friendly, smiling, I'm just here to have fun, let's have a good time way. (laughs) They like to berate their opponents, insult them, and... Frankly, if I were an amateur, kind of confused about the game and thinking I'm just going to have fun, like uh, shooting crap or playing blackjack, and somebody behaved in the way that a lot of these quote-unquote skilled players behave, I'd say, screw you guys. I'm out of here. I'll go do something that's fun. So the really, you can read any of the books by Mike Caro or similarly gifted writers about poker. They'll tell you the same thing. Best is to have a happy-go-lucky, I'm-having-a-good-time um, attitude and not to let people in on the fact that you're really there just to make money. The guys who play poker for a living, do you see that they bet more
1: aggressively than the players who are just in it for the thrill of it? Or uh, or do you see,
4: you well, can't really sure. tell? I mean, well, I can tell if, I, if there's a player who knows what he's doing uh, and does it well or she knows what she's doing and does it well. Uh, generally speaking... At a typical one-two, no-limit game, you don't have people that are full-time professionals. You may have people that are semi-professionals making some of their living. But when you move up, it tends to be... uh Players that are more selective and more aggressive, uh, that are paying attention as opposed to being distracted. I've written a lot of articles on how to tell if a table is good. It's a table that doesn't have the type of player that is that looks like they are very serious about the game. But in fact, some of the very best players blend in so well that the typical player would not recognize them as the pro. They would think that, Some of the more somber, serious, sunglassed, uh, be-hatted, earphoned guys were the pros, while in fact they're the wannabes, and they don't really have what it takes to be a pro, which generally is an affect that attracts people to the game. So it's it's a very interesting question because sometimes appearances are deceptive. So do you think a guy like Phil Hellmuth,
1: is he out of the normal for a professional poker player? I mean, he seems to be acting out
4: more at the table. Well, there's a whole separate category. Now,
1: if, if you didn't know he was Phil Hellmuth, would you think he was a professional poker player?
4: Well, I don't know, because I do know he's Phil Hellmuth. So oh, okay. if, I mean, if he, somebody looked different with a different name but behaved the way he did, I would assume that they were not a pro uh, because of the tantrums and the lack of emotional control. But I would be wrong, because his play is clearly superior to that of 99.9% of the people who play. Um And I was just going to say that there's a separate category of professional. There is the cash game professional that is anonymous and makes his money by attracting people. And then there is the name pro, the tournament pro, who is very clearly known and identified because he's a celebrity and that's a whole separate category because a celebrity poker player, um, somebody who's seen on TV regularly, can make money in other ways, can make money because people uh, are going to be intimidated by his betting or will want to stick around in the game because he's a celebrity. He doesn't have to be seductive with his style of play or his affect because he, as a celebrity, people want to play. Just like if Mickey Mantle, when he was alive, or better yet, if Willie Mays is playing... If it turns out that Willie Mays is a great professional player, everybody's going to want to play with him anyway because it's Willie Mays, <laughs> right? Or I'm dating myself. Uh, Derek Jeter. Um, similarly, even if it is a professional, if it's Phil Helmuth or any of a number of you know the top 500 televised professionals, I'm going to want to play in his game because it's cool to be playing with him even if I'm uh, unloading my bankroll into his pocket.
1: You said something really interesting. Can someone consistently win at poker and still remain anonymous?
4: How do you balance that? I with- guess it depends on how you define anonymous. But there are there are professionals, certainly, who play regularly who people don't know their names unless they're playing in their game regularly. I mean, if I if, – um, let's say I'm a serious big-time professional player – and I'm playing at the commerce, maybe the regulars know me as a winning player, but 90% of the people that might sit down in my game wouldn't know me because I'm not on television, I don't sign autographs, I haven't written any books, and I don't have a face that's recognizable. So yes, most professionals, I would say, most cash game professionals are not celebrities, are not well-known. They don't play in the big tournaments on television, so who's going to know who they are? Well, let's stick with Facebook because I don't think we have uh, too much more <laughs> okay, questions. Shoot. What else? Here's,
1: here's Marie from Facebook page. What do you do to alleviate stress or boredom involved in sitting at the poker table for too long? Anything you can suggest to avoid a bad case of
4: sitting-itis? Okay, that's a very good question, and uh, it shows that she's aware of one of the classic weaknesses that a lot of regular players have. They tend to st- sit in the game too long. They lose their edge. They become inattentive. They become bored. The key is, for me, I get up and I walk around, sometimes literally in a circle next to the table just to exercise a little bit, uh, sometimes just to get into the habit of standing up so that I don't atrophy, uh, my leg and uh, back muscles don't atrophy, exercise a little bit. Well, that that's would be my all answer. we got. Okay, um, listen, folks, please come back next week, listen to House of Cards, and good night and good luck.